Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Always busting their bums. We actually have a chair here. Does someone need a chair? We have a folding chair here, just one. But we can put it there as long as it's not like right in the aisle. You can totally use that. Yeah. There's another one there. Um, we also want to mention that um, Greenlight Bookstore is here. Let's give them an applause. So Greenlight Bookstore um, is our new bookseller. This is their this is uh, their second month that they've been selling books for us, and uh, we really want them to come back, right? So the way, the way we do that is we buy books, right? So we support the independent bookstore, we support the authors. Not just the authors tonight, but future authors, right? So please, if you can, if you can afford to, please buy a book, keep, keep, keep them coming back and you know, support the authors and, and, and keep, keep uh, everybody, everybody happy. Um, so uh, wave in the back, there's Ben from Greenlight Books. He's right by the door, there's Ben, yeah. So we have books for sale, so. Uh, at the intermission, you can go up there and, and buy a book and bring them up to the authors and have them sign it. Um, I, I will mention that, Ellen. Ellen wants me to mention, a, uh, she's going to do a, a giveaway, a trivia giveaway. So basically she's going to... This gonna, time we thought of the questions in advance. We thought of some questions. <laughs> Every time we, we do this, we, the questions are too hard, so we try to... We try to... Uh, yeah, easy. Uh, you know, pick some low-hanging fruit, so to speak, uh, that, that you guys will, will get pretty quickly. There's, there's probably like seven or eight giveaways. There's, there's a, uh, books, audiobooks, etc. Uh, but we're going to do that at the break. Um, our readers tonight are Carrie Laban and Molly Panzer. Super excited. Um, I've been a fan of both of their, their work for, for a long time. Um, and uh, just, just really happy to have them read for us tonight. Before we get to that, just a uh, couple quick announcements next month. April 17th, we have Dale Bailey and Arcady Martin. May 15th, Kaya Shante Wilson and Simon Stranzas. We could clap a little hard on that, it's okay. Yeah. It's an audio, so people will hear June 19th, Chuck Wendig and Keith DeCandido. July 17th, Tadwell Turnbull and Theodora Goss. August 21st, August 21st, had too many drinks before I came here tonight. <laughs> August 21st, Lara Elena Don Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. And September 18th, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. So we hope you'll join us for, for, the, uh, for them. Um, we have a mailing list at kgbfantasticfiction.org. If you just go to that website, you could just find the link there, or there'll be like a little pop-up. We send out like one or two emails a month just to remind you of the readings. We don't spam, we don't share your email with, with anyone, except Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and all those. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, we don't share with anybody. Um, so yeah, onto our, onto tonight's readers. Uh, 
Carrie Laban is the author of A Hawk in the Woods, which is for sale in the back, uh, coming from Word Horde in, Mar in this month. Her work has appeared in such venues as Apex, The Dark, Indiana Review, Oki Panky, and Outlook Springs. In 2017, she won the Shirley Jackson Award woo, in short fiction for her story, Postcards from Natalie, and Duke University's Documentary Essay Prize for the essay, The Wrong Place. In 2015, she was selected for the Anne La Bastille Memorial Writers Residency, and in 2018, she was a McDowell Fellow. She now resides in Queens. Here's Carrie Laban. see how we're doing. Can people hear me? Yeah. yeah. All right, awesome. All right, so I'm going to be reading a bit from this new novel, which those copies in the back are literally the first copies I have even physically seen, so very exciting, very fresh, you know, unspoiled territory novel-wise. Get out there and get you some. Um, the first bit I'm going to read is from it early in the book, and it kind of establishes the three main characters, which are the twins, Abby and Martha Waite, and mysterious force that's pursuing and harrying them. Abby is a witch, and she has mind control powers. Martha is also a witch, and she has time-bending powers and has just gotten out of prison, largely thanks to her time-bending powers. And the mysterious force harrying them is mysterious, so I'm not going to tell you about it. So here we go. By the time they get up to their room, Abby's eyes were starting to get standy and hot. The bed looked almost as appealing as the bottle but only, only almost. As soon as they'd settled in and kicked off their shoes, they realized that, of course, she didn't bring a corkscrew. The nearest Walmart was largely deserted by this hour. A few wandering tweakers and bored teens, a few stalkers piling merchandise into edifices, a few moms with colicky babies or in last minute need for poster board, a few cashiers propped against the registers. All dwarfed by the ceiling and the shelves, they did little to stop the place from looking post-apocalyptic. There was a whole lot of stuff, though. As Abby and Martha trekked towards housewares, a small child started howling in the distance. Damn, Martha said, twisting her neck as she gazed from the display of bright blue and purple tights to the great wall of cereal boxes and back again. Yeah, Abby didn't say. I suppose if you just got out of prison, this place doesn't look like such a dump. I covered the grand opening, she offered instead. It was a mob scene. And a couple Christmases ago, there was a stampede that killed a 72-year-old lady. Another baby's wailing voice joined the first. The sound moved through the aisles like a flash flood. Martha winced. Come on, it'll be over in the kitchen utensils aisle. Aisles. Abby turned left at the display of clever little citrus sisters, only to find that there was actually cookware, the end cap of teas. And now Martha had vanished. She backtracked and found Martha staring up. In wonder? In dismay? at a tower of orange and green South Beach blenders. Shake it, we don't have all night. Something moved up there. A pigeon probably got in, or a bat, that happens sometimes. Martha didn't move, it looked big. Whatever it is, I care about my corkscrew more. Abby stared down the back of Martha's neck, wishing she was impatient enough to break her own long held rule and push her sister into obedience. Before she quite resolved to walk away, though, Martha turned to follow her. And turning at that moment probably saved Martha's face. 
Abby saw the hurtling shape a moment later and ducked, pulling her sister with her into a cr crunch, and the hawk passed just over Martha's shoulder and circled away. Holy fucking shit! Abby had never seen a bird that size that close, not where she could feel the air moving under its wings and see its pupils dilate. And yet, as big as it was, it had vanished like it had came. Martha lurched upright. What the hell was that? Some kind of goddamn eagle or something. Where did it go? Abby scanned the faraway beams of the ceiling and the fluorescent lights. There was nothing up there that could possibly hide a bird the size of an English bulldog. It must have landed somewhere, she said, gesturing vaguely upward, trying to project unconcern as her sister would, so her sister would stop hyperventilating. We have to get out of here. We need a corkscrew. And forks for your tiramisu. A giant bird just tried to scalp me. I'll eat the tiramisu with my hands. I don't care. A few aisles away, the crying babies started a crescendo, a note of rage entering their voices. A tantrum. Shut up, Abby muttered. I wish the damn hawk would eat you. Of course. I'm serious, Abby. I want to go back to the hotel. It was probably just as freaked out as you were once it realized you weren't a mouse. Martha almost looked like she might believe it. She hadn't been facing the bird, so she hadn't seen the claws or the implacable golden eyes. And she could never see the bizarre tangle of hate around its head. Come on, Abby said after a moment. And Martha finally obeyed. They found the corkscrews behind a display of disposable plastic martini glasses with slogans like Gold Digger and Bitch on Wheels printed on them in pink glitter. Forks were easier, and before long, they were being checked out by the near-comatose cashier. The babies were still howling behind them, but that didn't seem to strike anyone else as unusual. Okay, now we're going to take a little break and do a little flashback um, to when Mabby and Martha were in middle school. Their mother was still alive and their family weirdness was more contained. Neither Abby nor Martha said anything to Mom about the weird pop-eyed young man when she got home from work. That went without saying. Mom didn't like to be bothered with problems when she came home from work, even if she made it while they were still up. Over breakfast the next morning, though, Abby still intended to keep silent. She didn't say anything to Martha about that. She thought the rightness of it would be obvious. There was a guy staring in the windows last night, Martha blurted, as my Mom sipped coffee and Abby had her mouth full of frosted flakes. At least, Abby thought as she swallowed frantically, Martha had the presence of mind to make it sound like they'd had the curtains open. A perv, Mom said, with an odd note to her voice. She didn't sound mad, at least. He didn't have his thingy out or anything like that, Abby said. He just tapped on the windows a couple of times and then ran away when I turned the porch light on. Around what time? A little after dark. 8.30? Maybe 9? They were supposed to be in bed by 9.15, but Mom seemed okay with them breaking that rule when she wasn't around to see it. Mom nodded firmly and didn't say anything else except, hurry up, you're going to be late. That day, Mom came home early, or maybe she called in sick and never went to work at all. At any rate, she was home when Abby and Martha got off the school bus, drinking a glass of wine in the living room with the curtains wide open. Nothing yet, girls, but we'll get him. She smiled. She sounded pretty excited about getting him, actually. Abby had to admit that it was nice to have Mom home, Mom home to cook dinner again for a change, something that wasn't just spaghetti and sauce from a jar. But it was annoying not to be able to go read in her room when the dinner was over. Mom insisted they stay downstairs with her, curtains wide open, 
night pressing from outside. Don't stare, Mom scolded when Abby snuck nervous glances at the reflecting windows. We don't want to tip him off. Abby was more worried about him not tipping them off, not until it was too late. She wasn't sure why, but since yesterday, his Popeyes had grown in her mind, and being looked at by them seemed more and more dangerous. She tried to concentrate on the TV show Mom had picked, but it was stupid and didn't make any sense. Invisible people laughing at the wrong lines, and the family acted like no family ever. The kids told their parents their secrets without even being threatened, and the parents responded like Muppets are cartoons, all smiles. During the third commercial break, he tapped at the window again. Mom looked up, and Abby could see she was pushing him. Her eyes were a little wider when she hit the shell. I could have told you it wouldn't work, Abby thought. But Mom adjusted quickly, standing up and smiling, her eyes locked to his creepier ones as she moved towards the door. To Abby's surprise, he didn't run this time, although he looked like he wanted to. When Mom opened the door, he just stood, swaying slightly, until she gestured at him to come inside. Then he obeyed, straight into the living room and through to the kitchen, where Mom poured him a glass of water without a word. He drank it down and held out his hand for another, and Mom gave it to him as though it was nothing at all odd about any of this. After the third glass of water, he began to pant, hands to his knees, and Mom dropped the glass into the sink with a clank. Then he straightened up. You only had girls he said, like he was someone and wasn't half-fainting in their kitchen. You thought that would protect you. Mom gave him a look of the most perfect scorn, and Abby had never loved or admired her more than in that moment, and would never again. That's not what's protecting me, she said, and her tone matched her face. But yes, I have two beautiful girls, and they're mine. Behind Abby, Martha crept into her shadow, as though she could disappear and they could become one. It's not 1937. We can use girls. So you can, but not if I don't let you, so you might as well go crawl back home. He glared at her, his eyes looking like they'd come out and fly around the room if they could, like UFOs. His whole neck was heaving with his breath, and he licked his lips until Abby wanted to offer him chapstick. Give them to me. My master has need of them. The hell with you. The hell with your master. Do you think you'll compel me? He stopped a moment, and then Abby saw his thoughts reach out towards her mother, and then draw back in disarray. The Shoggoth's locked in its place, Mom said mockingly. The ground is mine. The house is mine. The girls are mine. You have nothing. No crack through which to creep to me, and no lever by which to compel me. The pop-eyed man, who was the pop-eyed boy in Abby's eyes now, seemed to crumple in on himself. He looked longingly at the sink and the glass. I gave you water already, Mom said. You can't say I treated you with anything less than perfect hospitality. I cannot, he rasped. You might as well go, she said, letting the repetition hang. I might as well. He began to walk back to the front door, and Abby and Martha shifted out of his way, but he never made it out of the kitchen. Mom bent over him, where he lay on the linoleum. They didn't give you very much to go on, did they? Was it worth it? His voice came out a sob. What choice did I have? There aren't weights to spare, and Uncle Nathaniel is growing old. You could tell them no, as base a man as my father did. There was something in Mom's voice then, 
a species of regret. She ran her fingers across the pop-eyed boy's forehead as he gasped on the floor. You say that as though it's easy. He died on the kitchen floor in the night, and Mom brought the cleaver out again in the morning. There was no further trouble with him. How am I for time? Okay. All right, we'll do one more. So this is another from the present. Abby and Martha have reached their destination, which is the family cabin in Minnesota. And uh, everything's not going as smoothly as maybe they had hoped. So, As if on cue, she heard the front door creak open and Buddy's toenails... Oh, Buddy is the dog. They picked him up on the way. As if on cue, she heard the front door creak open and Buddy's toenails clicking on the floor. Martha came in behind him, and she probably wasn't really stomping as loud as she could on purpose, but Abby was in no position to tell. She pushed herself to her feet and dug through the bags until she found the phone charger, plugged it in. A few tweets about hangovers should help, although don't pass out in the middle of necromancy was probably a bit too on the nose even for her audience. Martha was in the bathroom now. Abby heard the shower running. She braced herself and looked out the window. A beautiful day. Driving east to the nearest town with a grocery store was going to be hell. As she stood, out the, stood at the window, she heard her motor far off. So far off that for a little while she wasn't sure whether it was approaching or driving away, but of course it was approaching. Of course it was, when she felt like she could barely stand up herself, let alone push anything or anyone else. And how? Had Martha's work come undone, despite her promises? Did they have another way to, f to follow them? Was she all wrong about the Hawks, after all? The truck pulled into the driveway just a bit before the moment that she reached the door, having poured and downed a glass of water in the hopes that it would help. Unfortunately, the water only seemed to have started the whiskey circulating again, making her brave and stupid and maybe just desperate to get this over with and stop hurting. She opened the door before they were even all out of the truck, hoping to wrong-foot them just a little. It worked. All three looked startled. And then, suddenly, hope bubbled dull and distant to the surface of her hangover, because these were just men, not other weights at all. Just common, ordinary duck men, turning up here by coincidence. If she hadn't been in so much pain, she would have laughed out loud. Ma'am? The driver, a man of about forty with a brown cap and flannel shirt, stopped with his hands still on the fishing rod he'd been unpacking and looked up. Are you all right? Abby took a deep breath, making sure her feet were set so that she was steady, ignoring the more unpleasant implications of the word ma'am. I'm fine. What can I do for you gentlemen? Well, we've rented this cabin here for the next week or so. There must have been a mix-up. The other two men, both younger than the driver, were out and staring at her now. She was surprised at how hostile, the f hostile they felt. She must have looked like a wreck, and the bubble of hope had popped into swamp gas. She needed these guys out of here, now, even if they weren't weights. And she needed to not have them complaining later or comparing notes with the rental agent. And how the hell was she going to do that? She felt Buddy slide past her legs, and the men grew even more tense, though the dog wasn't being aggressive, just sniffing around in friendly lab fashion. She called him back anyway, just to be safe. But he ignored her and trotted towards the interlopers, head up, Utterly confident of his reception, he'd no doubt spent hundreds of happy hours with men like these. One of the younger men drew a gun. His hand was shaking, but his jaw was set. Abby forgot whatever subtle, charming plan she'd been starting to form and grasped his will in her own so hard she was almost hurting herself. Buddy! Abby flinched and twisted, Martha's voice stinging her ear from right behind her. She'd never known Martha could yell that loud. 
She caught the stranger's intent and got hold of him again, just in time to relax his finger from the tight edge of pulling the trigger. Buddy galloped by her and back into the house, almost knocking her off balance, and she loosed the man on purpose this time. It was a risk, but now he had to lower the gun or look stupid anyway. His companions were staring at him, a little shocked. Behind her, Martha was sobbing, from the sound of it crouched down, probably caressing Buddy and putting on a good show of being helpless, harmless, the pair of them. A smile wouldn't be quite right now, but if there was one thing that the local news in Buffalo ever gave her, it was the schooling on how to look serious, even sad, and attractive at the same time. Could everyone please just calm down, she said, wobbling her voice enough not to sound like a ball buster. I'm sorry Buddy scared you, but he's harmless. I apologize, ma'am, the driver said. Mitch gets nervous around dogs. He turned a little and glared at Mitch. And you surprised us. There have been some cabin break-ins recently. You never know who you could run into. Jesus Christ, did they take her for a meth cook or something? Could three days on the road and one bender have messed her up that badly? Well, I apologize for the mix-up. You see, I own the cabin, I was told no one was booked for this week, so... She hadn't even thought to check, actually, both because they would have given her location away back when she thought this would be a real jailbreak, and because she just hadn't thought. Fall was when hunting accidents popped up in the news, and she didn't know anything about fishing. And who was, to say who was to say that these men were telling the truth? Who was to say they weren't the meth cooks? Meth cooks with fishing rods. She was distracted by all this at the moment the hawk screamed out of the air from over the cabin, straight into the driver. He screamed in turn and twisted away from the impact, but he was bleeding like crazy, and Mitch whipped the gun up in one startled movement and managed to shoot his buddy in the face while only knocking a few feathers from the bird. <laughs> the three men... The third man, the quiet one, now yelled something incoherent and jumped on Mitch. Abby backed through the door, crowding Martha and Buddy to safety behind her. Get down, she said. Stay away from the windows. For herself, she ignored her own advice and peered around the edge of a curtain. Blood was sluicing down the driver's face, but he was still on his feet, barely, leaning against the truck while the other two men wrestled on the ground. The fight might have been about possession of the gun only seconds ago, but now they just wanted to hurt each other in the fury and confusion. The gun was knocked one side, no one's mind on it. And then the driver's mind moved. His attention, a moment ago clustered and roiling around his own head, his own pain, reached for the gun. Then his hand did. Beyond the truck, the hawk landed heavily on the ground and blinked as though it was confused. The driver leaned too far and stumbled to the ground belly first, but he didn't flinch or try to catch himself. Instead, he grabbed the gun with one hand, propped himself up with the other, and fired the gun at the still-grappling men three times. The repeated noises startled, started Buddy howling. Great. A lab that didn't like guns. A genetic defect. However good a hunter this man once was, the man mind-controlling him now couldn't access his abilities, so couldn't aim. Or maybe he was blinded by the blood gushing from his former face. His targets were still alive, although in one case Abby could only tell because of the tiny flicker of will that remained a flame that would snuff out of its own accord in a second in the cool damp of morning. The other one, Mitch, couldn't seem to get up, but he was yelling his lungs out. There was no one to hear him. Grandfather bought enough land to make sure of that. The driver's body scrambled to its feet, then turned towards the cabin and raised the gun to point at a window. Abby, energized by the energy the men had poured into her moments before when she was all they had to worry about, didn't flinch. The driver's body didn't have intent now, so much as a murky wad of hunger and rage. 
She wasn't sure if that was because his grip was weak, or that was because the way he existed all the time, forever a wailing infant. It didn't matter why, though. Only what. Get in the pantry, lock the door, put a chair against it or something. It was the only place in the cabin with no windows. Martha grabbed Buddy by the collar, and his howls crescendoed as she dragged him away. Abby waited until they were out of sight around the corner before she reached for the doorknob. Mitch's screams had died away to whimpers. The driver kept shuffling in her direction. She'd thought right. He couldn't see. He didn't even raise the gun before she was on him. And no wonder, one eye was basically gone and the other was completely shrouded in blood from the gash the hawk had left on his brow. Behind her, there was a dull rustling thump. She risked a glance backwards, but it was just the hawk, with whatever remained of the driver's consciousness now shunted inside, trying to figure out how its wings worked. A farce that wouldn't last long. A pity she wouldn't be able to enjoy it. First thing was to get the gun, but this body was strong. She pushed at the incoherent hungry mind and threw it into confusion while she grabbed his thumb and bent it back sharply. An old self-defense class trick from college, and it worked for a moment, until something lurched into her from behind. She was so confused and shocked that it took her a moment to realize that the body attacking her was the third man, the one who'd flickered and died just moments ago. He was just as incoherent and clumsy as the driver, but together the two bodies were stronger than she was, and besides, she was sick, and besides, she was stunned. How could he be managing two bodies at once? He couldn't manage them well, though. Slippery with blood, she wrenched out of the third man's grip, and the two bodies clawed at each other for a moment as they all dropped to the ground. The third man knocked the gun from the driver's grasp. She kicked it back towards the cabin, and now it was just a matter of forcing him out of the body. Bodies. She had the advantage there. A dead, dead form was easier to take over, but it was harder to hold against any opposition, with the physical structure of the brain already broken. She headbutted the driver's body. She was going to be covered in blood no matter what she did. She already was, though she hadn't had time to notice yet. There was no sense in being squeamish. As he reeled from that, she turned to the third man and kneed him in the groin, and then twice for good measure. He jerked back and fell, and she pinned him to the ground. The blind driver groped in the wrong direction. After that, it was a piece of cake. Keep the body confused and in pain and work on the mind until it loses control. As soon as the body started to slacken, she dropped it and turned for the gun. Too late. The driver went limp on his own and the hawk took off. At least she had a gun now. Among other things, she could put Mitch out of his misery. So that's from A Hawk in the Woods, and you can buy copies back there. So please do, and you get Carrie to sign them. And we'll be back in about 10 or 15 minutes. And then I will have a giveaway of audio books. Support them and support us. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, we are pleased to have Molly Tanzer come to town from way, way in Longmont, Colorado, which she claims is a cowboy town, which I don't believe. I've been there. It's not a cowboy town. Well, it's not entirely. Okay. All right. Okay. Now they have cocktails. Is it Jennifer? Anyway. Is the author of Creatures of Will and Temper, Creatures of Want and Ruin, and Creatures of Charm and Hunger, which is a book here for sale, right? No, it's the first two. 
Oh, the, fir the first two, okay. So when is the last one coming out? Spring 2020. Okay. <coughs> she is also the author of the weird western Vermilion, which was an io9 and NPR best book of 2015, and also the British Fantasy Award-nominated collection A Pretty Mouth. She lives in Cowtown <laughs> with her cat Toad. Please welcome Molly Tansy. Okay, I only fell once, good. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Molly Tanzer. 